Our New Testament scripture comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 40 to 52. And we read this. And the child grew and became strong. Jesus was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was on him. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When Jesus was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his uh, understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been uh, anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth, Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Over the next seven weeks or so, we're looking at seven virtues believers both receive and are called to practice in the life of faith. Now, virtue is not a word that we uh, commonly talk about maybe in our culture, in our, our day and age. Traditionally, virtues refer to qualities and habits of human excellence that allow life to flourish. For ancient Greek philosophers, virtue simply meant to function well. What are the things that we can do to function well in our society, both as an individual and as part of a community? In Philippians 4.8 and 2 Peter 1.5, Paul and Peter use the word, the Greek word for virtue to describe the excellence of life all believers have now that the Holy Spirit lives and moves within them. Virtues help conform the heart and mind of every Christian to the pattern of Jesus, providing a moral standard, an ideal by which life can be lived for their own spiritual growth, for the good of others, and the glory of God. While we find various outlines and examples of what a virtuous life looks like in the New Testament, Christian thinkers often divide virtue into uh, two different categories. Most recognize the four, most people, even non-believers, people of different religions, recognize the four cardinal virtues of wisdom, courage, moderation, and justice as good for society. Believers add three additional theological virtues uh, to that list of hope and faith and love. It's important to recognize, however, that virtues do more than just describe desirable actions. Uh, uh, desirable actions. C.S. Lewis warns in his book, Mere Christianity, there's a difference between doing a virtuous thing and being a virtuous person. 
He writes, someone who is not a good tennis player may now and then make a good shot. What you mean by a good player is the man or woman whose eye and muscles and nerves have been so trained by making innumerable good shots that they can now be relied on. They have a certain tone or quality which is there even when they're not playing, just as a mathematician's mind has a certain habit or outlook even when they're not doing mathematics. The virtues don't just help us do the right thing, but train us to become a new kind of person. That's the whole point of virtue. Lewis continues, We might think that provided you did the right thing, it did not matter how or why you did it. Whether you did it willingly or unwillingly, sulkily or cheerily, through fear of public opinion or for its own sake. But the truth is that right actions done for the wrong reason do not help to build the internal quality or character we call a virtue. And it's this quality or character that really matters, that God is concerned about. We might also think that God wanted simply obedience to a set of rules, whereas he really wants people of a particular sort. Our God desires not just that we act in ways that reflect his kingdom, but become good people. Become believers that uh, we live into the, the identity of his children. We do that with the help of the Spirit who constantly works to make us more like Jesus. And so we're going to be looking at virtues, what it means to be a virtuous person, and how we can pursue these virtues in a life of faith. So our scriptures this morning both look at how we find wisdom, what wisdom means, but especially how Jesus embodies wisdom and how we can do the same. So wisdom, what is wisdom? Typically, it's marked by deep understanding and a capacity for sound judgment. Classically, wisdom is defined as the ability to make the right choice in any situation. Solomon, the son of David, who ruled as a king of Israel during a time of incredible prosperity for that nation, exemplifies what it means to make wise choices. Shortly after becoming king, Solomon was asked by God what kind of a blessing he wanted as Israel's next leader. First Kings tells us Solomon didn't ask for wealth or power or even victory over his enemies, but he requested instead wisdom to govern, to discern between good and evil so the people of God might prosper. The Lord was impressed by this request and granted it and gave Solomon an understanding mind. We can see this in other stories throughout Scripture, uh, but it made him into the most celebrated king of Israel's history. Israel, this was when Israel was uh, the most well-known and most prosperous of its entire history as a kingdom. Solomon defines what it means to be wise, and he wrote a good portion of the wisdom literature in our Bible. So he wrote a a little bit of the Psalms. He wrote the Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs. He wrote Ecclesiastes and also uh, the book of Proverbs. And that's where we see uh, what it means to to be wise. He wrote in Proverbs, wisdom is better than rubies and all the things that may be desired are not to be compared to it. He writes in Proverbs 13 that wisdom should be valued above everything else because the teaching of the wise is a fountain of life that turns away the snares of death. But most importantly of all, 
In Proverbs 9, Solomon grounds wisdom not in some generic worldly definition of knowledge, but by understanding who you are in relation to God. He writes this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Solomon recognizes only when you know who you are before God can you approach the world and other people with any type of clarity. John Calvin echoed this later when he wrote, True wisdom consists in two things, knowledge of God and knowledge of self. We cannot understand ourselves without understanding God. From this foundation, wisdom grants life, determines choices, helps us understand the world, guides our interactions with others, and forms us into the people we were made to be. The problem, however, and I'm sure most of y'all have already picked up on this, is that wisdom doesn't reside naturally within us. My dad joked when I got my wisdom teeth that I'd be dumb <laughs> after. That little, I mean, I was like, you know, 15. It still kind of worried me. But it would have been nice if wisdom resided somewhere in us like that. We know this, however, because we all have made and still make unwise choices. As kids, we spent the money our grandparents gave us on candy or toys or fireworks. As teenagers and young adults, we often set aside responsibility for fun with friends or doing things we wanted to do. Uh, recent scientific studies have revealed the human brain isn't fully developed until 25. It doesn't fully set until 25, but we don't suddenly become wise at that moment either. It would be nice if once we reach a certain age, we never make any bad choices, but that's really not how it works. As adults, we misread stressful situations. We make assumptions about others. We provide wrong advice. We mismanage time and so much more. So if we aren't born with an innate sense of wisdom, how do we get it? If we look around at the world, we can see two different methods. The first is through experience. Now, this approach says wisdom can be gained through basic trial and error, which makes a little bit of sense, okay? If you touch a hot stove and burn your hand, you'll learn stoves are painful and avoid touching them in the future. But wisdom built only on experience isn't foolproof because it's unable, it is always unable, to provide us a full picture of life or the world itself. It can also allow one bad moment to color everything else. When I was a kid, um, I had a bad experience at a Chinese restaurant with the wasabi horseradish sauce that they call <laughs> mustard. Right, So like I thought it was the same kind of mustard you put on bologna sandwiches, and it was not. It was not. So after that encounter, I assumed that all mustard tasted like that and avoided it for years. Literally didn't put mustard on anything because I thought, don't want to experience that again. The wisdom that I learned from that experience simply prevented me from eating tasty sandwiches for most of my life. The second way that we gain wisdom is by seeking it in the world around us. Now, the great part about this method is that we have an abundance of choices. When I was a teenager, I had quotes from Star Wars tacked to my wall. They helped, or so I thought, inspire and guide me through life. But when you're in the middle of wrestling practice, getting slammed to the mat by the state champion who happens to be in your weight class, Yoda's famous advo advice 
from the Empire Strikes Back's do or do not, there is no try, does not help. (laughs) It just doesn't. The wisdom of the world does provide some instruction, but we never quite find the answers to those deep, profound questions of human existence. Even worse, much of the standard advice our culture gives, uh, gives us leads us in the wrong direction. We've often heard, especially in our culture, in movies and TV and movies, uh, and movies and TVs and songs, that we should follow our heart, right? Have y'all heard that before? That advice might comfort us, right? But what if, like Jeremiah 17, 9 declares, our hearts are deceitful and sick, corrupted by sin? Worldly wisdom fails to satisfy because it never really leads back, leads our hearts back to the Lord. Paul confirms this in uh, 1 Corinthians 3. The wisdom of this world is folly with God. But we actually have a bigger problem because even if we could experience, even if experience could teach us wisdom or the world offered us sound advice, our rebellious hearts always choose the wrong thing. The sin inside of us impairs our ability to make decisions. So even if godly wisdom was put in front of us, we'd still quickly turn away to something else or reject it outright. Like oil and water, so does the human heart run from God's wisdom and insight. No matter how hard we search, sin prevents us from finding, much less practicing the wisdom we need to flourish in this world. Our search for wisdom, of course, mirrors Joseph and Mary's search for their son, Jesus. After spending Passover in Jerusalem, Mary and Joseph started their journey home to Nazareth. Now, at the time, um, uh, Jewish families traveled together in large groups. As it was safer, it made the journey more bearable. You would travel sort of in a company with a whole bunch of friends and family. And so when you moved like this from city to city, people mingled, children hung out with friends. You know, you would just kind of spend the night with your friends over there in that place. Uh, so it shouldn't shock us that, that as their first day of travel ended, they realized that Jesus was missing. It's not that Joseph and Mary were being neglectful, okay? So that's important to understand. But it's horrible to misplace your child in any uh, circumstance, but Uh, I would imagine their distress was magnified by the knowledge that Jesus was not your typical 12-year-old, but he was the son of God, the Messiah, the little boy who would grow up to become the Messiah, the son of God. I wonder if they asked the Lord for help, if they prayed to God for help in finding Jesus. Do you think that would have been awkward? (laughs) Hi, Lord, it's Mary. You know your son, Jesus. Of course you do. No reason to worry, but do you know where he is? (laughs) We've done well for 12 years, but we sort of lost him this most recently. Could you maybe throw a star up like you did last time so we could find him? We We need some help, please. Thank you. Of course, their parental instincts kicked in because they searched Jerusalem for the next three days. Eventually, they found him sitting in the temple asking and answering questions with the wisest teachers of the day. Understandably upset, Joseph and Mary confront Jesus and they say, why have you treated us like this? We've been searching for you in great distress. They couldn't find Jesus. They couldn't find Jesus and so their lives, and so their lives had been consumed by intense worry and sorrow. 
The word Luke uses for distress is used only four times in the Bible, twice in this passage uh, and in Acts twenty thirty eight, when Paul leaves a group of Christian he loves, the word uh, describes the grief that people have when separated from someone they deeply care about. But it's also used in Luke 16 to describe the enduring anguish of hell. In vivid detail, Jesus explains in that chapter in a parable what eternity looks like separated from the Lord, eternal torment, no way to find your way home. Using the same word his parents used to describe their separation from their son, Jesus outlines what life looks like when we are separated from our God. Our sin separates us from the wisdom we need to live a full and abundant life. So whenever we can't find it, that same extreme distress, that deep worry, descends upon our own souls. Lost, we wonder why we can't find our way home with only pieces of a much larger map. Our brokenness turns everything upside down, making everything good, naive, everything true, relative, everything noble, idealistic, everything holy, unattainable, everything loving, weak. Everything but the wisdom of God brings darkness and confusion, only God's truth brings life and light and clarity. Without connecting our hearts to God, even the wisest remain ignorant of truth and blind to God's presence. Which is why the teachers and sages of Israel were so amazed when this young boy, just 12 years old, not even a teenager, came and ta- came to talk with them. These teachers, the very ones who studied the history of God's people and memorized God's law, who had dedicated their lives to discovering the truth and attaining wisdom, were still operating in darkness. They hadn't discovered the wisdom of God in ancient books or theological discourse. They had an idea, of course, reading the history of God's people and how God moved in to the, his, to the people of Israel, how he claimed them as his own. But they met wisdom. They met God's truth when a teenage boy walked into the temple and started asking questions and giving answers. They never would have guessed the wisdom they sought, the truth for which they searched would show up in person. Wisdom personified, truth made tangible, the word made flesh, walked into their lives that day and amazed the wisest elders of Israel. The great mystery of the incarnation, of God becoming one of us, reveals how Jesus fundamentally changes the relationship between the Lord and his people. Our sin prevents us from finding wisdom. But the good news for believers is that the source of all wisdom comes to us instead in Jesus. As the fountain from which all wisdom flows, Jesus brings the wisdom of the Father with him into our world when he was born in the manger. He revealed that wisdom in his ministry and fully unveiled it at the cross. But he also makes that wisdom available to us through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the source of our wisdom because only through Jesus can we understand who we really are and how we fit into God's plan for this world. 
Recognizing the love found at the cross is the first step of all wisdom because only there can we look at this complicated creation and know where we stand and where to go next. We are sinners redeemed by a gracious Savior, called to become more like Jesus every day of our lives so the whole world might know and proclaim the glory of God. That is the beginning of wisdom. David summarizes it like this in Psalm 107. Whoever is wise, let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord because only in the love of God do we know who we really are. Knowing that the Spirit moves and works within us grants us freedom to make decisions that honor God and others, to pursue peace rather than anger, to assume the best rather than the worst, to live knowing we have received mercy and are therefore bound to extend mercy to others. By God's immeasurable grace, Jesus comes to us so the wisdom of God might walk with us, might guide us and teach us what it means to be human in God's kingdom, not just sometime in the future when we return to God and glory But today, the church father Ambrose says it even more simply, the truly wise are those whose souls are in Christ. When the knowledge of God's unmerited favor guides our every decision, influences our every relationship, informs every choice we make, it is then that we reflect the wisdom of God. So let us seek wisdom this new year with good cheer, knowing that wisdom himself not only walks with us, but lives inside us. Amen.